Divey's Late Night. By stock, building up the image. Shot by shot, keeping at a distance doesn't pay. Still, if you remember your object and not give all your privacy away. A little bit of hype can be effective, as long as you can keep it in perspective. Even when you get some recognition, everything you do, you still audition. Art isn't easy. Keep a link with your tradition. You gotta learn to trust your intuition. While you reestablish your position, so that you can be on exhibition. So that your work can be on exhibition. New girl, they tell you till they're blue girl. You're new or else you're forever. And even if it's Wow. Hello, gorgeous. And welcome to Debbie's Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. Thank you for listening to my me as well as Barbara Streisand tonight on our Broadway-themed podcast. I'm so excited. Tonight's guests include We Are Diabetes founder, Asha Brown, Maximize Your Metabolism co-authors, Dr. Noel McLaren and Sunita McLaren, Coach the, Cure, Coach the Cures, Trisha Artman, Dana Rosen from Integrated Diabetes Services, no Diabetes by Heart, Ambassador Karen Dawson, and our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Before we get started, I'd like to encourage you to follow us on Facebook and hit the subscription button for DivaBetic on YouTube and on Diva and Diva Talk Radio on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Tonight, we're putting on a little show to raise awareness for diabolemia and talk about other topics such as stroke and insulin resistance with music from Barbara Streisand's The Broadway Album. Back in 1985, Barbara Streisand returned to her roots with the release of her 24th album, The Broadway Album, which proved to be both a massive critical and commercial success. We're spotlighting music from Broadway's most popular musicals in celebration of Governor Cuomo's announcement that Broadway will be reopening on September 14th, actually the same day as our mystery podcast premiere starring my very own mother, Mama Rosemarie. You might have a mom, she might be the bomb, but ain't nobody got a mom like mine. Her love to the end, she's my best friend. Ain't nobody got a mom like mine. She's my All right, that was my Mother's Day, uh, Mother's Day message to my mom as well as all the mothers listening tonight. I want to. Uh, my mom's there, stars in that show every year with me, and uh, I have such a great time. So shout out to Mama Rosemary, and look forward to hearing her on September 14th when she appears in our newest mystery podcast, A Christmas Peril. We can all agree, I think, that life without theater, concerts, and comedy shows basically sucks. My career started in regional theater in the Bay Area, and, you know, I just want to high-five everyone who held on and is returning to their work on stage and backstage after a year and a half. 
when the industry was shut down due to COVID concerns. We appreciate you so much, the work you do, and recognize the hardships you over the past year that you've dealt with. I just didn't think you got enough recognition. And, you know, to hold on to your dream for this long and go for it, I think uh, Ethel Merman's going to help me out. I had a dream, a dream about you, baby. It's going to come true, baby. They think that we're through, but baby, you'll be, well, you'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate. Starting here, starting now. Honey, everything's coming up roses. Wow. Can you imagine not hearing Ethel Merman for a whole year and a half? Well, that's why we're putting on the tiny little show tonight to raise awareness and greater understanding for diabolemia. This is an important topic, and we really wanted to cover it diva style. So I asked my good friend Asha Brown and Trisha Hartman, who are going to be performing a short scripted scene for us tonight between two friends shopping for bridesmaids' dresses to help us put on this show. And then afterward, we're going to host a group discussion about the signs and symptoms of diabolemia, the health concerns, and what kinds of treatment can help for recovery. But first, to kick off the program, once again, we're going back to Barbara Streisand. She's going to help us set the mood for our scripted little scene between two good friends. Here's Stephen Sondheim, Pretty Woman, courtesy of Sony Music. Coffee, dancing, pretty women are a shop with me for bridesmaid dresses. I'm glad you made it despite all this traffic. Sure, no problem. It's so cool that Ashton's letting us pick out our own dresses. I know, right? And we finally get to spend some time together. I never see you. (laughs) Me too. Work is so crazy. I'm, I'm bummed I missed Ashton's bridal shower and I heard about the cake. It was so much fun. Do you mean the hummingbird cake from Magnolia's? Yes, it sounded so good, like everything else in there. (laughs) I'm addicted to their chocolate cupcakes with vanilla frosting. I practically eat one every day. No way. If I eat cupcakes every day, I'd be as big as a whale. How do you stay so thin? (laughs) No, you're kidding, right? (laughs) I'm huge. Diabetes always gets in the way. Wait, what was that? Uh, Never mind. Let's, Let's just look for dresses. Didn't you already show Ashton a dress last month? Oh, you mean the blush co- uh, the blush co- co- colored Vera Wang? Yep. Well, you know, there's extra fabric bunching around my waist now, and I just I look pregnant in it. I don't believe that. Your waist is so tiny. What are you doing? 
whole, you know, the same old thing, just a few more yoga classes. Why can't that work for me? I go to spin classes four times a week and still can't seem to lose any weight. Hey, Britt, let's take before and after selfies to send to Ashton. Come on, smile. No, 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 I don't like what I'm wearing. Hey, are you okay? You look kind of pale. I'm, I'm fine. Let's just sit down for a minute, okay? Should you check your blood sugars maybe? Uh, no, no, I checked before we met and I'm fine. Work, work is just stressing me out. Look, there's a, there's a Jamba Juice right over there. Shouldn't I get you something? No, no way. I cannot drink that. Their drinks are so fattening. It's just like, you might as well just have a milkshake. Are you sure? Don't you need to drink something? No, I'm okay, okay? I know how to handle this. All right, now we're going to continue on with the group discussion on diabulimia with Patricia Addy Gentle, Integrated Diabetes Services, Dana Roseman, Asha Brown, and Trisha Artman. Um, let's begin with just a brief introduction of everyone, starting with our actresses. Asha Brown, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, hi, everybody. So <laughs> I am the founder and executive director of We Are Diabetes, which is a nonprofit that is devoted currently to supporting people living with type 1 diabetes and disordered eating. And that goes for all types of disordered eating, not just uh, diabulimia, which is actually just a media coined phrase for um, a, one certain behavior that someone living with type 1 diabetes can struggle with, which is the insulin omission. All right. And Trisha Artman, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Trisha Artman. I'm a health and wellness coach, and I created um, Coach the Cure. And I work with clients that live with chronic illness and um, just helping them kind of support them and, and help them realize that they're a whole person. You know, they're not controlled by their diagnosis and that life goes on and it can be, you know, even better than before. It just it takes some support and some work and, you know, it's it's possible. So, um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here tonight to talk about diabulimia. All right, and joining us for the first time is Dana Roseman. Dana, tell us, everyone, a little bit about yourself. Hi, I hope everyone is doing well right now. Um, I'm Dana Roseman, talking to you from Dallas, Texas. I'm a registered dietitian and a diabetes care and education specialist, um, and I work with Integrated Diabetes Services. And finally... Uh, Patricia, we never get to introduce yourself, so I'd love to hear what you have to say. <laughs> um, I am Patricia Addy Gentle. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and I am a registered nurse. I'm also a um, diabetes educator and care specialist, education and care specialist, and I just love doing the Divabetic podcast, so <laughs> it's just plain old Patricia. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you all for being a part of this. Yeah. Ash, let's come back to you. I know we heard several signs of um, someone suffering from diabulimia in that scene. Tell us what they were and a little and give us a little bit more explanation about it. Sure. So there were a lot of um, well-written uh, subtle hints, and maybe they weren't even that subtle. Um, but, you know, um, and, and again, I want to state that these are signs and symptoms that have commonly been recognized. It is not 
all of them, nor does it fit the bill. So if there are signs that I'm going to talk about and someone listening um, has a friend and they're worried that that friend might be struggling with an eating disorder, but they are not these signs, it's still possible, okay? So let's not rule everything out. Um, but there's some some signs in this script that we just did where, um, you know, Brittany has kind of an obsession over some food. She talks about food in, you know, in an excited way. However, she's a little, she's actually quite, she has an aversion to actually eating um, or like, the, the concept of eating in front of her friend. Um, and that's, that is actually pretty common to um, joyfully talk about food or even obsess about food, even hoard food, but then be very avoidant of actually eating and sharing meals with others. Um, body image distortion and low self-esteem, which are, you know, two different things, but they are also present in what you guys just heard. Uh, aversion to testing or over, overall kind of being honest or specific about diabetes management with loved ones is also a very common sign um, that someone might be struggling or, or you know, hiding some, some behaviors that they know are, are dangerous. The other um, obvious sign is that, you know, Brittany's not doing well. She's pale. She's not, you know, she's weak. Um, and, you know, she's refusing, you know, to, to have glucose when she might actually need it, or the opposite, her blood sugar is so high that she's feeling um, very, very fragile as well. Great. And Trisha, you know, you helped rehearse this a, a few days ago, and then you helped me tweak some of the lines. What did you gain from the experience? I mean, what was your thoughts as you were reading this and working on it? Um, I, you know, just recognizing Jordan, you know, she, she's, a good good friends with Brittany, and so you can hear her concern as she's going through. Um, she's asking like subtle questions, but there's there's this layer of concern that it's it's more than just um, that you know a regular conversation, maybe a teen conversation, or just between friends. There's there's an extra layer of concern from the reaction of Brittany. It's almost she's just dismissing her anytime she tries to adjust, address something about getting help or like needing some kind of support. It's very quickly dismissed, and then you know, back to the dress, and um, so she's, she's trying to ask some questions there, but getting turned down each time, so right. I, I could see, yeah. Brit I mean, Jordan wanting some kind of, needing some kind of support of, hey, how, you know, how does she even address this, so I'm sure that's a, a great concern from, for many family members, friends, you know, that, that have to deal with this, you know, where do you go to when you try and bring it up, but you're just not having it. To jump on that, right. I want to um, mention to everybody that We Are Diabetes actually has some resources that um, address just that. So we have a section mm -hmm. on our website for concerned um, family, friends, loved ones, partners, how to approach someone, you know, to start that conversation because obviously there's going to be a lot of defensiveness and then we worry perhaps it's not true and then we're going to offend our loved one. So we do offer information about how to uh, lovingly get that conversation started. And as and Asha, I mean, Asha, you, oh, oh, yeah, go to Trisha, then I want to ask Asha a question sorry. before we go to Dan. <laughs> I was so popular. That it's, yeah, you are very popular here. So <laughs> I want to say that it's also you can tell that, you know, sometimes with conversations where one person who's concerned is trying to, you know, bring up the topic or get into the conversation a little bit more to offer support, 
But because of, like in this example, how Brittany's shutting her down all the, all the time, it's very mm-hmm. easy to, to kind of turn around and, you know, leave it because you obviously can't yeah. get in. Well, so to yeah, actually you, you, support them. It's, it's exhausting. I, you know, I right. can't tell you how many, um, how many families I've worked with where they're like, but I've tried and I've tried. And I'm like, well, yeah. you have to keep trying because it's, right. you know, that's, it's, but yeah, it, that is a huge obstacle. Right. So right, I'm going to come back to you, but first I want to talk to Dana, because Dana, this, I mean, this person, is Brittany, is, is purposely omitting taking her insulin, and this is, uh, unfortunately, Dana, uh, Asha reported like 30% of uh, people with type 1 diabetes are doing this behavior. I'm just curious, like, how dangerous is it? Because I, I could see how it could be provocative with someone, and it seems fairly normal that a lot of us today with the social media and uh, influencers have weird perceptions of what should look good or how we should look. And so I, I just want to hear from you um, your thoughts on it and also about some of the health concerns related to doing this. Right, sure. Um, and I think that it's important to go back to what Asha said um, a couple of minutes ago about how this just being one aspect of a disordered eating, but people with diabetes and taking insulin are kind of faced with this issue, you know, at a minimum, maybe three times a day. And how common is it? I would say it's probably much more common than the 30% that's reported. I don't think that um, providers go deep enough into people's habits um, you know, just for example, I saw a gentleman today who doesn't take insulin for mealtimes and he needs to. Um, and is it because of mismanagement or is it because of diabolemia? And I think that's a difficult thing to tease out sometimes. But I think that people who consistently skip insulin for um, for for their meals, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to really get at the cause of that and it can be um, confusing. And so I think it is an underreported habit or um, pattern that someone might have. Um, And then I think sometimes people will skip taking insulin for foods they deem, um, you know, guilty about or feel bad about eating a donut, Mm -hmm. for example, that they might just avoid taking insulin for that donut and it just didn't happen. It just never came into their, their life because they skipped insulin for it. So I, I do think it's an underreported phenomenon. Um, and in terms of how dangerous it is, I mean, having high blood sugars that go untreated for long periods of time can certainly lead to complications um, and, and have some real problems for health, you know, very quickly. All right, and, and Patricia, you know, last month we spoke about Luther Vandross and his weight issues living with type 2 diabetes, and that's why I kind of wanted to do um, focus on diabolemia tonight to show another side of it. So many men and women living with diabetes think that insulin makes them gain weight. So I would love to know from you uh, what's, the, what's the truth on that. Yeah, sure. So, oh, go ahead, Patricia. Yeah, that is really a true statement that a lot of men and women um, ex- do experience weight gain from insulin. And, um, you know, that that is one of the reasons why we see so many people with type 2 being insulin resistant. I mean, not uh, what I'm trying to say is hesitant, not resistant, but, you know, 
hesitation to, to even start insulin is because they've heard the stories or maybe they've had insulin in the past and they did experience the weight gain. And that's a whole nother um, talk when you start talking about African-American women who have um, the weight gain from the insulin and they are still trying to lose the weight and not uh, exercise in the way that their partners might exercise because of hair care and, and other obstacles that may be in the way. So it's a whole big psychological process. It's a whole ball of wax, and there are all types of variables and nuances and a thorough, very thorough assessment, you know, to get to the depth of what motivates that person to do what they're what they're doing or not doing what they should be doing it is really uh it's it's difficult but we have to as educators and practitioners delve deeply into um what motivates or uh, does not motivate a person and sometimes most of the time psychological um intervention or some other type of an assessment needs to be done. Okay, and Asha, I want to go back to something you said right at the beginning. Like, why is it, you know, it is called diabulimia and it's classified as an eating disorder. Can you tell us why? So, you know, diabulimia is actually a media coin term, and I'm, I'm not quite sure. Self Magazine came out with a very big article, I believe, in 2007, and that kind of just, got everywhere, you know, um, and then we started talking about it. But diabulimia is not at all a medical, um, clinical diagnosis. And actually, people living with type 1 diabetes and an eating disorder is not, um, it's not technically um, a medical disorder in the EDSM-5, which is, you know, the big book of mental clinical disorders. Um, so we're not there yet. Um, there's, there's medical acknowledgement under um, you know, uh, binging and purging behaviors, and they talk about it a little bit. But unfortunately, there's a lot more awareness that needs to happen um, before we get to a point where this disorder, which is very prevalent, you know, in all different varieties within the diabetes community at large, there needs to be a lot more awareness until we can get this um, to be recognized by the medical community as a real disorder. You know, I appreciate that. And now, Trisha, you and I worked on this script. I want to talk about the importance of language because there's a line that Jordan says that we wrote, shouldn't I get you something, which, again, you know, it could, you could soften it, but we really wanted to, you know, infer some kind of judgment call on the way that we're assuming Jordan knows Brittany has diabetes. She is aware of her um condition and how she treats it and here she comes with this judgment of should I get you something like I know you counsel a lot of men and women with diabetes how do they react to something like that a statement like that oh it, yeah the most most people are rolling their eyes and saying oh if one more person asks me you know how I feel or you know to do something eat this or not eat this or usually that just sends them, you know, through the roof, and there's so much resistance just in that topic because, you know, right from the beginning they're being told to do something or not do something against what they maybe would have chosen beforehand, and so it's it's like this, this lack of control, and you know, who doesn't want to have their own independence, their own control? So, and especially when 
you know what you're doing is not maybe what is should be is expected of you or what is in alignment with what what you should what was good for your health. So um, so I, there's already resistance in that right when she says that. So I actually when we were going over the lines, I'm like, how should we put this? Do we want to do we want to have some resistance from her or do we want it to be like you know we can put, pose the question in a different way. Um, but you can see that there's there's definitely a struggle there with with Brittany. Um, so I think it comes across like she doesn't want anybody else kind of telling her what to do or outing her um, with with what's going on for her, even if she doesn't really know exactly what she's doing. Because sometimes it's you know it's not they're suffering. They're, they really are suffering on their own terms, and they don't know how to get out of it. Not that they don't realize that it's wrong or or that it's not that it's hurting them. It's just it's a spiral there's so much and, and gray how area. to get out there's of it. This, yeah. yeah, there's so much gray area. It's just there's not only is it not defined, not only is there not a perfect list of signs and symptoms you can look for, but it's just, you know, the person who's living with it, I personally didn't come to this recognition that what I was doing was so dangerous for like over a decade. Yeah. I'm just, you get right. stuck in it. Right, exactly. That's what and I one, think. And- Mm-hmm. Wait, I want to jump in with Dana because you're living with type 1 diabetes too. You're also a clinician. This is a, I mean, like what Asha and Trisha are saying. It's like it's so unique to the person, and there's so much confusion. A couple months ago, we had a woman, uh, the angry woman who had Lada, who has Lada. There's so much confusion around that diagnosis. I could see why you could kind of veer into these other places because of that. Is that fairly common from your experience, or how, how would you as an educator tackle this problem that Brittany has? Well, and I would also kind of piggyback that there is so much shame and um, I, I guess also fear with diabetes and insulin and, you know, people making comments like, you know, I should get you something or should you be eating that is such a common mm-hmm. thing that people also say. And so it does cause a secret to that person living with diabetes that they don't want those comments because diabetes is such a personal, individualized disease. And it it seems to be one of the only things that has such shame and judgment from other people around it. And so, you know, I think that um, – how we approach it is is having a safe space and having people know that there is no judgment, you know, talking about this and that the number one goal is to find healthy habits and manage their their chronic disease in, in situations and, and that comes with education. But it, it takes time. It definitely takes time. And, um, you know, I always tell people there's a whole career path dedicated to diabetes education. I just don't know of another disease that has a whole career path like that. And it's because this is such a complicating chronic disease. Sure. Yeah, it's right. so personal. And, um, before we, mm-hmm. Yeah, and before we wrap up, I want, Patricia, I want to talk again about this kind of frustration. I mean, on the other end of omitting insulin are these people, a lot of them are listeners with type 2 who are omitting carbohydrates. <laughs> you know, they get diagnosed and that scare tactic comes into their head that they have to make these kind of all-or-nothing scenarios in their head. Can you speak to a little bit about that? 
Yes. Um, there are a lot of people who do omit carbohydrates and not understanding fully the pathophysiology and knowing that that is the fuel um, that keeps them going. And so omitting carbohydrates um, helps to keep you in like a, a keto acidotic state as well, and the weight loss uh, comes about from um, those high, high blood sugars that they do experience. And so um, we do have some type 2s who have this same type of mindset, I guess I should say, uh, when it comes to body image and weight loss. So it is a mix, like I said before, it's just a mixed a mixture of different feelings, different emotions, uh, feeling the shame, uh, body image, having people uh, make comments or having people look at you certain ways or making decisions about what you should or should not do. And so all of that, a combination of what motivates a person to do what they do. And sometimes it's like, um, even in the in the scripted part where you're saying, you know, should you be eating this or shouldn't you have this uh, to help you to feel better or to help the condition? But um, one of one of the ladies was just talking about the control, and so that too is a mind game. So it's like you you've already lost control of the body function of you know the pancreas is not doing what it should be doing, and um, there's a lot of shame around that, especially with the type 2, because they feel in some instances that it's a condition that a lifestyle or habit or something that they have done to make themselves fall into this category. And so there's already the shame. And to have someone to talk in certain terms and use certain words just adds damage to the insult. Okay. And now we're wrapping up. Ash, we're going to give you the first word. Then after everyone speaks, we're going to give you the last word. I just want, you know, what are we missing in this message tonight? Because this is such an important topic around uh, what we've been talking about this year. What, what, what would you like listeners to know? I think I'd like listeners to know that, again, it is not just um, insulin omission, but also um, any size body can have an eating disorder. That's really important. Anybody living with diabetes, type 1, type 2, um, LADA, all combinations can have an eating disorder, and they can be any size, and it can still be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well okay. stated. That uh, is a very good point. And, and um, Dana, I know you and I spoke. Uh, I mean, this purposely was written for two younger women. But when you and I spoke before this conversation, you were telling me that uh, it's not just younger women, Max. <laughs> There's yeah, it's men, not at all. Also yeah. older women. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, there has been associated with diabetes so much shame and um, people who just maybe don't, have their head wrapped around a positive relationship with insulin. And so through the years and decades, I think people develop ways of managing diabetes that's um, not always the healthiest way. And they don't appreciate 
certain ways to manage weight as well and fall on this mismanagement. So I, I do think that, um, unfortunately, I probably see, you know, several situations a week where someone has either never really managed their diabetes to the full of their potential and has fallen on, you know, skipping meals or skipping insulin or um, not taking enough insulin for, for what they need. And it, it could be because of a, um, an eating disorder, but I, I think also it can, it can all be captured into just mismanagement and, and there's that, that shame and judgment they feel from others. Okay, and uh, Trisha Artman, our actress mm-hmm. tonight, <laughs> one of our actresses. <laughs> No, absolutely. I I just completely agree that that blame and shame that we put on ourselves, and then also you know things have changed so drastically from even when I was mm-hmm. diagnosed um, seven when I was seventeen, and I'm forty now. So if things are so different just from that time frame of I was told you know no sugar whatsoever, and as, except for a seventeen year old, like what? And then now it's a whole different mindset, but yet a lot of the stigma and the, the conversations are still that old mindset. And so it's, it's really, it, it can be tricky. So the best advice is least to get just support as soon as you can. I, I'd like to say before you, Dr. Wendy Rappaport also always says this, is get support before you have a problem. You know, after the medical, you, you need that right in the beginning to kind of get the shots down and what you need to do or the medication, but then team up with somebody that can really, make things clear for you, help you process. There's such an emotional component throughout your whole entire life with whatever type of, even if you're not diagnosed with an illness, but it's just there's an emotional roller coaster, and it, a lot of it has, we put it on food, whether we have, like, you know, the good times, we relate with food, right? We celebrate with food, and when we have those those dips in our lives that we, we go for food to kind of pick us up, and that can cause, you know, um, a lot of, dysfunction and upset and just this roller coaster ride so teaming up with somebody it's not shame to go you know get somebody to help you it's only helping you you know get through things and make sense of things so you can you don't have to stuff anything down anymore you can just feel comfortable safe in a safe spot and um, get the true the right correct information for yourself that's really important great advice all right we're going to Wrap it up, Ashley, but first I just want to thank you for allowing us to kind of stage this tonight and try to bring a different kind of awareness to uh, what this topic is and present it in a new and different way. So I appreciate that. I want you to give you the final word, tell people about some resources as well as your final thoughts on the subject. Thank you, Max. You know, so again, um, We Are Diabetes is available. Uh, WeAreDiabetes.org, there's a contact us page, there's a contact section for concerned family members and friends as well as an individual who might be struggling. Um, I've been doing this now for over eight years, and, um, you know, my mission is to help people find healing. So if you need help, I'm here. (laughs) So is what. Thank you so much. And, Patricia, you're sticking around. Stay backstage because we've got a big show coming up. In the meantime, thank you, ladies, for joining us tonight. Hey, Broadway is the home of 41 theaters, drew 14.6 million people, who spent $1.8 billion on tickets in 2019. Hooray for Broadway. Our next song is from the popular musical Company, which is coming back in December 2021. Um, 
with music by lyrics from George uh, Stephen Sondheim once again. Here's Being Alive, courtesy of Sony Music. This is probably one of my favorite songs off the album. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody force me to care. Somebody make me come through. I'll always be there. As frightened as you are being
Sadly, this young man had given up on himself and seldom left home. He had no social uh, life at all. And these are all insulin uh, symptoms of underlying insulin sensitivity. So when we taught, when we met him, we explained he had a genetic disorder rather than um, it was behaving badly. We made changes to a diet, had a new uh, dietitian support him. We encouraged him uh, to exercise every day. We changed some of his medication that was adding to his weight gain. Today, happily, he's lost over 100 pounds. He has a full-time job, which he loves. He works out every day and, in fact, uh, at the time, at this time, is planning to get married. This is insulin resistance. That's amazing, but I just want to go back. So, is insulin resistance really my body's inability? My my body is resisting the insulin I make. Is that what it is? And how is that term different than insulin sensitivity? Since you just mentioned that as well. Right. So insulin is an important hormone for life. Without it, we can't survive. Um, When people are insulin resistant, they make insulin uh, normally, but uh, their body is insensitive to it. So uh, that causes a problem with energy uh, in that insulin takes sugar from the blood and puts it into muscle to be burned as energy. So a common symptom is tiredness and its first cousin, uh, depression, often occur together. So the insulin, the body over-secretes insulin. Sometimes the levels are five or even ten times the normal thing to keep the blood sugar normal. And when that begins to uh, become more difficult, then the blood sugar goes up and that person goes from pre-diabetes to full-term diabetes. All right, and Sunita, you know, Diesabetic is known for doing makeovers. We're all about appearance to generate that uh, confidence in you to manage your diabetes. I know you and I have spoken that insulin resistance sometimes can actually affect our overall appearance. Uh, Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yes, Max, you'd be surprised how many people come to our clinic not because they're feeling unwell, but because they're worried about their appearance. Either they have uh, premature hair loss or women may have facial hair. Sometimes they have uh, dark circles around their eyes or they have these uh, rings around their necks. Children may have what look like stretch marks on their arms or their backs. So all of these are symptoms that a person has high levels of insulin. And the great news is that in many instances, these symptoms can be, if not fully reversed, you could go a long way to dramatically correcting them. I love it, and I just think, like Dr. McLaren, you're now using science the same way we use makeovers at Diva to help people 
uh, get rid of the shame or blame associated with maybe being diagnosed with insulin resistance or, like you said, prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. So tell us a little bit how the science is actually removing some of the shame or blame someone might feel around the diagnosis of, let's say, type 2 diabetes. Yeah, we, we embrace your outlook very much. So um, a person who is, um, comes because of weight problems or type 2 diabetes who is convinced by their doctors that they've seen that it's all their fault, um, they've clearly failed. It's not a, a good starting place. So our starting place is to identify that they're insulin resistant explain that this is a genetic disorder and not their fault. However, the solution is um, uh, uh, such that the disorder can be managed and uh, problems, complications like diabetes actually uh, reversed by diet and exercise and medication that the uh, program offers. And, Sunita, I think hearing that it's not my fault, that this could be something that um, is in my blood, in my genes, so to speak, is such an interesting um, approach. And I know you, you and I have spoken that a lot of researchers have been studying past famines to explain why a younger generation might have a greater chance of developing insulin resistance. So tell us a little bit about that, because I was fascinated about how past famines in history have a direct correlation with what might be happening today with their offspring or generations of their offspring. Yes, so Max, you know, some time way back in the 60s, a scientist um, came up with this idea of what was called the thrifty gene theory, meaning that people, human beings adapted genetically to be able to store energy during periods of famines and fasting. So our Paleolithic ancestors might go for long periods without access to food. So that was one part of this idea that how our body processes food and stores energy is based on genetic changes. Another thing that they saw was uh, a, a, a British scientist called Dr. Widdowson noticed that when she looked at data of the children born of mothers who had survived famines, was that these children had a very high rate of diabetes and excess weight and high blood pressure. Now, what we see today is that Pregnant mothers who are heavier are more likely to be insulin resistant, and they pass that on to their babies. And this is characteristically seen when babies are born with low birth weight for their gestational period. So one of the things Noel likes to say is that people say that you are what you eat, but what we say is that you are what your mother ate. So in our clinic, we strongly encourage pregnant moms to keep their weight in control, manage their insulin levels through various means, and they then go on to have normal birth weight babies 
and some and break that cycle of insulin resistance in generations of their family. Wow, we're going to take a quick break. So much great information in that interview, and we're going to be, as you can see, talking more about this isn't your fault, and what can you do about it to change that. Right now we're going to go back to Broadway. About 30 shows are currently planning to begin performances on Broadway before the end of 2021. Approximately half will start in September, and then the rest will start across the year, uh, the final quarter of the year, including company, which I mentioned Earlier tonight, we'll come back in December. Our next song is from the 1957 musical West Side Story. Now, this is interesting because there's a new adaption being directed and co-produced by Steven Spielberg with a new screenplay by Tony Kushner, who wrote Angels in America. And I know that because I actually worked on the very first production of that back in the Bay Area. <laughs> Here's the song. is from uh, Leonard Bernstein and lyrics by Steven Sondheim. Here's something... Um, Something's coming with Barbara Streisand, courtesy of Sony Music. Could be, who knows? There's something new any day. I will know right away, soon as it shows. It may come cannonballing down through the sky, gleaming its eye bright as a with the authors of the new book, Maximize Your Metabolism, Dr. Noel McLaren and his wife, Tanita McLaren. All right, welcome to Diabetes Late Night. I'm talking to Dr. Noel McLaren and his wife, Tanita McLaren. They're the authors of the new book, Maximize Your Metabolism. That's going to be coming out shortly. Uh, Dr. McLaren, I have to ask you, because this is such a big question in the diabetic community, should people with type 2 diabetes see an endocrinologist, and why would they choose to, if you think so? Yeah, so... Everybody who has type 2 diabetes is insulin resistant. Uh, the diabetes is but one complication. There are a plethora of other complications that occur, excessive weight gain, a hormonal imbalance, polycystic ovarian syndrome, an inability to get uh, pregnant in the case of uh, women, um, and even... Then later in life, um, in a mental impairment or Alzheimer's uh, disease. So it's important, I think, that a person with type 2 diabetes uh, see an endocrinologist to look uh, at all of these perturbations. Because if you're hypertensive, it's going to affect your health and longevity. It needs to be treated. So there people with insulin resistance are often hypertensive. They may have gout. They may have kidney stones. It's, it's more than a, a single 
the, the single entity of diabetes. Diabetes is just uh, uh, a, a, a hallmark and a, a progression of uh, this disorder. And if, as this progresses, Anita, you might, like her husband just said, start seeing issues around brain activity and brain health. Can you explain that link, uh, insulin resistance to brain health? Yes, Max, you know, this is one of the, uh, I think, one of the most fascinating outcomes of our clinical work as well as the research that we've done. And it's something we very much highlighted in our book that until now the discussion has been, oh, if you're at risk for diabetes or if you have diabetes, you know, watch your weight, watch your exercise, etc. But what we're seeing now is that when you have high levels of insulin, that creates all kinds of changes in your cognition and your brain health. So, for example, a lot of people with insulin resistance have come to our clinic with complaints of brain fog, you know. We know from the scientific data that there's a strong correlation with diabetes and depression as well as diabetes and Alzheimer's. What's now at the frontiers of medical research is that when you have these elevated levels of insulin over time, your brain loses the ability to metabolize glucose as efficiently as it did when you were young. And this then is now being more closely associated even with autism and bipolar disorder. So there's absolutely... You know, over and over we're seeing research that a person who has a low glycemic diet, their brain function is quite different on, than someone with a high glycemic diet. So we see much more brain synaptic activity, higher volume of the brain when the glycemic levels are lower. It is. It's fascinating, and you know, I want to I want to dive into the book now in our final moments and talk a little bit about maximize your metabolism because, Dr. McLaren, this book and and what your um, the the um, program you're laying out is based on years of working at your clinic with several patients to determine uh, how to best and most effectively help them with their health. You've, you've tailored it to five different body types. So can you kind of walk us through the body types and then maybe explain some of the body types with some of the patients that you have been treating? Yes, the object uh, of this book was to make a program that uh, has been successful in Sunita and, and my uh, hands over two to three decades, make it accessible to a larger amount of people. And the book... We start off by telling or explaining to people how they can uh, do an assessment to understand uh, four degrees of, uh, of uh, uh, metabolic types, uh, and three of which are, in fact, degrees of insulin resistance. Once a person has uh, uh, achieved a slot, 
we then designed a matrix of a metabolic matrix of 10 levels in which uh, such a person having assessed themselves uh, can then uh, access a program to improve their uh, metabolism and thereby prevent complications which as uh, we were discussing can be serious so uh, we I think Sunita has uh, been uh, uh, or has implemented the recipes that people can do since uh, what you eat is a big part of the um, of the of the program. But Max, if I could also just add the the main message that I want to give your listeners, and Noel joins me in this, is that. People's metabolism is dynamic, which means it can be changed. And we've seen the most dramatic changes occur in as little as six months period of time. And and so if based on our assessment, even if you're at a more advanced stage of insulin resistance, there's so much you can do to reverse that. So our book is gives you the tools by explaining 10 levels at which you can act to improve your metabolism and how you can, over a lifetime, enjoy the benefits of optimizing your emotional, physical, and mental well-being. I love it. You're giving people a lot of hope, and I hope they go out and get maximize your metabolism. I know it's going to be on Amazon and, and as well as different places, so thank you both for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank man. you very much. And we, the Divabetics community has always been very dear to our hearts, so we applaud each and every one of you. Oh, and we're applauding them. And I just saw our final guest walk into the green room, the fabulous Karen Dawson. She's going to be up in a minute. She's not only an advocate for... Uh, no diabetes by heart. She's also an actress, so she might enjoy knowing that our diva inspiration, Barbara Streisand, thinks of herself as an actress first and then a singer. That could actually work to her benefit because the Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest-running show, along with Hamilton, The Lion King, and Wicked, are all returning in the fall. So, Barbara, if you're listening, which I'm sure you are, um, maybe you and Karen Dawson want to team up and join one of those shows. It's going to be kind of amazing to have both of you on stage. Right now, we're going to get away from that craziness with my mind. You know, when I hear show tunes, I just get so excited. I mean, I have missed all the theater for the last year and a half, so this is kind of fun for us tonight to do this. We're going to play another song from Sweeney Todd. You know, Sweeney Todd is a story about barbers who are a bit mischievous, and if you've tuned into our mystery podcast, you know that's kind of like my character, Mr. Divabetic, although I never try to hurt anyone. I'm just always accused of murder. Nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around. Nothing's going to harm you, no, sir, not while I'm
lovers can desert you not to worry whistle I'll be there demons will charm you with a smile for a while but in time nothing can harm you not while I'm Streisand, the Broadway album, it's stunning from start to finish. Welcome back to Divey's Late Night. Our next guest is a no Divey's Right Heart ambassador this year. Please welcome Karen Dawson to the podcast. Hi, Karen. Thanks for joining us. Well, good evening, Max, and I'm excited to be here. All right, and, and also joining the conversation is, again, our very own Patricia Addy Gentle. Patricia, you're back. Thanks for being in the green room and sticking around. I am. Um, uh, Karen, I want to jump right in because I understand that you recently had another stroke to your eye, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience. Absolutely. Um, Having it happen the second time, it was a a pain in my eye socket. Eventually, it started off as a headache. Then I moved to the eye. Um, I took the routine Tylenol. And I woke up at 3-something in the morning to go to the restroom, and I saw double vision. I knew immediately I had to get to the ER. So I drove myself to the ER, and they did the routine, which is the routine test, MRI, CT. Nothing showed up on the MRI, CT. I was referred to a neurologist, and in conversation with the neurologist, he referred me to the ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist, I asked her, I said, did I have a stroke or what? Because one doctor says one thing. She said, you absolutely did. At some point, I had uncontrolled diabetes levels and blood pressure. And what happens is we slough off something, my words are crystals, and it blocks off your microscopic vessels in your eye. And that's why the MRI and CT will not see it. And it affected my um, cranial nerve number six. And with this type of stroke, you do fully recover. But it's a very long process. And, you know, right at the beginning of that, Karen, thank you for sharing your testimonial. You said my second stroke. So were you, now let's go back, were you as proactive in the second stroke um, and the first stroke as you were in the second stroke by taking immediate action? I found myself that most people who have suffered a stroke uh, tend to feel like initially that their body let them down. They just kind of want to shake it off and pretend like it didn't happen. So I'd love to hear your side of the experiencing the first stroke. The first stroke occurred, I've always had good insurance, good jobs. This particular time I had a part-time job, no medical insurance. Um, I thought I was okay with controlling my blood pressure and diabetes. Obviously, I was not. And in the process, I have migraine headaches. This was the worst migraine headache in my life. I went to sleep, woke up the next day, and couldn't open my left eye. Um, I still got dressed in my scrubs, went to the hospital I worked at, walked into the ER. They did my vitals. They go, Karen, you're going nowhere. You've had a stroke. 
And my brain, although I'm a health professional, I can only take in so much information and I get numb. That's when I express feeling numb. Um, after that process, I only spoke with the neurological team. I did not have an ophthalmologist. I did fully recover. It did scare me. So I call myself, um, I now have a full-time job with good insurance, and I stayed on top of my numbers, but it happened a second time. It's not clear to me. The ophthalmologist said at some point it was uncontrolled, the diabetes levels and high blood pressure. Um, to prevent it from occurring again, keep my numbers really tight. I do finger pricks more regularly, and I check my blood pressure. Oh, great. Uh, I love to hear that, and thank you for giving that testimony. I mean, Patricia, you're listening in. It, you know, many people who have the stroke did what Karen did, which is just kind of want to, like, lie down. I don't want to blame anyone or shame anyone, but taking immediate action could really benefit you if you're suffering a stroke by minimizing some of the uh, outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about the need to take action quickly? Absolutely, because as soon as you are able to get to um, an emergency room or some type of a medical facility, um, then intervention can occur uh, immediately. One of the first things that we would do once a person enters into care is a set of vital signs. And once you realize that the blood pressure is elevated, of course, you're going to do something to lower it or to get it back down to the, uh, you know, acceptable numbers. And so you can, even with that, kind of slow the progression of a stroke. And now that there are hospitals that are certified as stroke um, trauma, not trauma units, but the stroke units that they do have where they are able to, um, you know, if this is uh, the type of a clot that is occluding a vessel, they are able to use medication that can kind of slow that progression as well. But it has to be done quickly. So you can't wait for hours once paralysis and that type thing has already started happening. But uh, when a person first realizes that something is going wrong, if the if the vision is not right, if there's weakness on uh, either side, or if, you know, the, the speech is slurred, or the thought process is just not where it should be, then action should be taken immediately. And we can't overemphasize how it it's necessary to get quick action. And Karen, were you experiencing those migraines for a week, or was it just right then, the night be, uh, the night of the stroke occurred that you had it? Because my boss, my former boss Luther Vandross, apparently had headaches leading up to his stroke back in 2003. I'd be curious to know uh, when you mentioned the migraines if you could tell us a little bit more about that. I would only get migraines maybe twice a year, so. Um, but what alerted me was it was the worst I've ever had. And um, 
when I woke up the next day, real, you know, not able to open my eye, I want to emphasize that this type of stroke, I completely support and agree with the routine um, symptoms of stroke that we are familiar with, but we also need to be familiar with if you have a severe headache you've never had in your life or a severe pain in the eye. Because I have family members that are diabetics and no one has had a stroke like mine. And was it a pain in the back of your eye or, I mean, I'm just, like, what, like, can you describe it a little bit more? Um, for the second one, it was moving around the eye socket when I was in the ER and the nurses were looking at me like, okay, because I would let them know, I know it's important to keep them abreast of how you're feeling. And um, it moved, it started back of the eye and then around the whole eye socket completely was in pain. Very unusual. I've never had that happen. And now, um, because this is our Broadway theme show, and I know you are an actress, and, you know, uh, a lot of people in theater didn't work for a year and a half. Very common, even when I was I worked in theater, it's your dream or your health care. You know, like I, I went for several years without benefits, too, in order to pursue my career. Uh what would you say to anyone out there? Because you did mention that the lapse in not having health care was one of the issues surrounding some, how some of this might have happened. What I found out is there is health care. It does exist. You need to go onto your state government website and look it up. And I found all of this out later because I've never had to look for it before. I didn't know it existed. So there is health care out there. There is help. And then for actors, there is an actor's fund um, with the union, which I am a, a part of. You can also contact them if you're an entertainer, and they can also help guide you. But there is health uh, insurance available. You just have to know how to go and find it. And, you know, there is a little bit of shame and blame associated with or defiance and some people in theater, like you said, they don't really want to tell others, so they might not take advantage of these resources. So I think that is an amazing tip to share for people because I know, again, like when I chose to go a different path, which I considered theater for my family, uh, you know, I was very defiant, and I kept that a secret. I didn't really want anyone to know because I didn't want them to shut me down with my dream. Yeah, I totally understand that. That's why I've always had my medical career in those jobs while I pursued the acting. But this was the first time where I did not have the insurance and then the, my stroke occurred. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about Karen's illustrious acting career as well as how some of her friends in the theater have helped her with her recovery. But first, we're going to take another break and listen to Barbara Streisand. I don't, I'm just feeling this... Um, Broadway theme all night long. I hope everyone else is enjoying the music as much as I am. This song is actually um, from the show, Showboat. Uh, Barbara Streisand, I guess, went through about three or four different orchestrations before she felt this orchestration was right. She went back to the same arrangement that uh, Ava Gardner used in the film version of Showboat for her version of Can't Help Loving That Man, courtesy of Sony Music. Let's listen. Fish got a sweet 
returning with our featured guest, Karen Dawson. She's one of the No Diabetes by Heart ambassadors. How did you get involved in that program, Karen? I was on Facebook, and um, I filled out a questionnaire in regards to my diabetes in my life, and then they picked who they wanted to pick, and they interview you. And then after the interview, I was chosen as one of the ambassadors, and that's how I met them. And tell us a little bit about your diva, your diagnosis to diva story regarding diabetes. When were you first diagnosed? What was going on? And um, share a little bit of that. I was um, first diagnosed right after my mother's passing because as an x-ray tech, unfortunately, I diagnosed my mother with lung cancer. Um, and when you have family history of diabetes, they say high stress will bring it on. So I was also her caretaker. So after she passed away, I said, let me go get a physical. I said, and by the way, let's check for my di- you know, diabetes due to family history. And that's when I was diagnosed, right after she passed in 2004. And so, like you said, it came on from the stress of that. I would think, like, you were just emotionally overwhelmed with your mother's passing, and I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I offer my sympathies. But, I mean, how was it, like, just talk about, we've been talking about kind of accepting the diagnosis. Were you fully committed to it, or was your mind somewhere so somewhere so far away that you didn't even have time for it? No, I actually committed to, to it. I'm sorry, Max. No, no, go on. I was, I, I was, I was saying you didn't make time for it either, but you're, you're saying you were committed to it. So just talk a little bit about that. It's interesting for people to hear. I was committed to it because of having both parents that were diabetics. And, but they were insulin dependent. I was on tablets, metformin. And over time, I had gotten my weight under control. Um, they cut back on the metformin throughout the years, and I was doing very well. Um, but I was extremely committed. It's very important. It can be scary in the beginning, but if you understand what it is, how you can treat it, and then how you can get better with it and live with it, it's not as scary or stressful. So for years I have been fine up until recently. And what was it like trying to manage it around your acting career? I know you, you're also a health professional, but just, talk, I mean, the long hours, I, I'm just curious, was that, how, how difficult or easy was that to combine acting and managing diabetes? It was very easy. No one knew I had diabetes. I knew what I needed to be around or to have around me for if the sugar were to go up or down. And, again, it was very easy to handle. No one knew I was a diabetic. Why I chose that, I, I don't know. I kept it private. So then what, made you, what made you kind of come out about it with no diabetes by heart? That's kind of fascinating that you changed your mindset. Because I think it's very important to get the information out there because a lot of people are walking around as diabetics and don't know it and how important it is to be tested for it, specifically if you have family history, because then you can catch it early. My mother, she accidentally got tested. Her girlfriend was visiting from out of town, and she did a finger stick, and my mother's sugar was way up. So I think it's very important that people talk to their doctors about it and just go ahead and get tested for it 
and then you can head off some things that can occur if the diabetes is uncontrolled because it can damage other organs in your body. And Patricia, I think Karen's speaking to the choir. What do you want to say about this? Because it's such an important message, what you just said. Very important message. I couldn't um, say it better myself. Um, when people are without insurance a lot of times, you know, I've listened to a lot of what she said, and so without having the benefit of purchasing those test strips, even when you know you have a diagnosis and maybe you've done well in the past, but, you know, now Karen is, is monitoring those blood sugars because she knows complications well and she knows what can happen when you're not in control. And so back to what I'm saying about not being insured and not and having to pay out of pocket for test strips is very expensive. And so that in itself... Uh, sometimes will make a person test less frequently and sometimes even skip doses of medicine because if you're paying out of pocket or you don't have the insurance for medication coverage, then you're trying to stretch it. So those are some of the down, you know, pitfalls that we see in a lot of patients who are diagnosed and maybe who have had success in the past and all of a sudden they slip off the wagon but it's um, financial sometimes. But there are resources, and everybody should be well aware of those. But unfortunately, um, it's a secret in, in some instances. But always contact your local diabetes association to see what's available. You know, speaking to your doctor, if you don't have primary care, um, then a lot of folk are using emergency services or just going to some urgent care but not having primary care. And that, too, um, is a big problem. So even, you know, and, and because you don't go on a routine to have all those routine tests and to, to maintain monitoring A1Cs and knowing exactly what's going on with your body or to have those other routine examinations um, such as foot care or having someone to do eye care. So that's where we see a lot of people falling through the crack. But do find resources that are available so that you are able to speak to a physician, get your questions answered, and I mean a physician who you see routinely, someone you have a rapport with, someone you've built up a trust with, not just seeking um, Band-Aid care here and there. But um, And medications are very important to renew and to continue to take them in the right way. So look for resources, um, and they are available. Even doctors are able, if you have a physician that you've been seeing and all of a sudden your insurance does not allow you to see that doctor, talk to them. Sometimes they will see you. Sometimes they have samples in the office. Sometimes they can go through pharmaceuticals and, and fill out forms to assist you in getting your medicines. But there are ways. Talk to somebody. And um, the ambassador program is a very good program. So that if you have a colleague or a friend or someone who can help you, sometimes that is the greatest advice that you can ever get. 
Well, that's a perfect lead-in for Karen because one of your friends, I understand, Carla, helped you with some of your recovery. So can you talk a little bit about the advice she gave you? Yes, because with the first stroke, because it scared me so, I could tell that it was a change or difference in how I was handling my hands or thinking. So Carla is an RN and an actress. And she told, her suggestion was use the opposite hand. So if I'm right-handed and brush my teeth with the right hand, use the opposite hand. And when you do this, it makes the brain rewire itself to get you back to your regular thinking. And in the process, I agree with her, it did work. I, I saw a noticeable difference to me quickly. And did you think your training as an actress, I mean, we always hear these cliches about getting in touch with your emotions. Did any of that help you um, with the first stroke, like just the emotion, the emotional and spiritual feelings you were going through regarding that experience? Wow. And regarding um, going through emotionally accepting a di- as a diabetic, in my acting career or? Just either the diabetes or the stroke. Like, because I know a lot of acting training requires you to really get, you know, dig deep into the emotions of a character. And I'm just wondering if some of that training actually helped you kind of move through some of these, you know, identify some of the things you were going through in order to overcome them and come out on the other side, which it sounds like you are to me just from how, passionate and also powerful you are in your testimonials. I'm just wondering, as to someone who's not acting, if you felt like any of that has helped you along the way? I don't think any of my acting helped me along the way. Um, when something that scary happens to me, the whole my whole acting thinking goes out the window. The, the real Karen comes through, the scared little girl. <laughs> um, I think my strength in having my faith um, and recognizing I've had other family members that have had a different type of stroke. Um, remembering that, pulling strength from that is what was how I got through it. I love that. And then wrapping up, like what what would you like to share with our audience tonight? In general, I want to. You've been going. Through? I want to emphasize there is insurance out there. Look for it. Go to your, like I said, your state websites. Um, Also, if you are an entertainer, Actors Fund is available to all entertainers and artists. Just look it up and you can get the information. Um, Always pay attention to any of the stroke signs of the routine stroke signs of the slurring of the words or drooping of the face, but also pay attention to if you have an unusual headache that you've never had in your life or a pain in your eye, do not sit on it. Get immediate help. If you do not have health insurance, you can walk into any ER. Any ER has to treat you when you walk in. So don't be afraid to do that. That's what I would love to emphasize. You just did. I love it, too. That's powerful. I'm going to be part of the Fraser Family Coalition uh, virtual event on Thursday, May 13th, at the virtual event at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. I'll be talking a little bit about Luther Vandross's stroke and his recovery as well. I hope you join us for that. In the meantime, don't miss next month's June podcast 
Uh, we're going to be talking to LGBTQ plus members living with diabetes, talking about some of the impact that diabetes has had on that community. And again, join us on our Facebook and our Twitter accounts, as well as sign up for our monthly newsletters. Um, I want to thank everyone for being part of this tonight's show. And it's time to get on with the show in all our lives. It's so exciting that Broadway's coming back. I hope people take a minute to support some of their favorite shows and theaters and, and those art organizations that have suffered for a year and a half and show just how much we love not only New York City, but all the theater going around around the country. So let's close with um, Barbara Streisand one more time. She's going to take us out with I Love You Porgy. Here you go, courtesy of Sony Music. Deep inside me But when he comes 